0: of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Last week's episode was about the canon of the New Testament. Why are some books in the New Testament and other books are not? If you remember, one of the main reasons is because New Testament books in the canon were considered to be written by the apostles of Jesus Christ or by close companions of those apostles. That is, those books had apostolic authority. So many other things were written for the Christian community, but those were not considered scripture by the early church because they did not meet this apostolic authority criteria. So the obvious next step is to talk about who wrote the books of the New Testament. So that's what we'll talk about today. So today's outline, I'm going to break up the New Testament into categories and then talk about authorship within those. But there's a little bit of, it gets a little bit mixed up. You'll, you'll get a feel for it. But anyway, here's the basic categories. So the Gospels and Acts, Paul's letters, the book of Hebrews, general letters, and then Revelation. Revelation. So there is so much discussion about the authorship of these books, because if the apostles wrote them, then they are likely reliable. And if they are reliable, then what do you do with the message of the New Testament, right? I mean, it should greatly affect your life. Just like the resurrection, if it's true, then what you believe about that has eternal consequences. So in this episode, I'll spend a lot of time on some of these categories and not much time on others. Each book of the New Testament has its own discussion about the authorship. Uh, Some are more simple than others. And so for the basic points, most study Bibles, like the ESV Study Bible, will have some of the key points about authorship at the beginning of the notes for each book of the Bible. And that's a good place to start. And then if you have any other questions, feel free to email me. I can send you more information on a certain topic and just kind of help steer you in the right direction if you want to research any of this further. So you can email me. Bear Christianity at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at TheRealBearMartin. And then if you haven't already and your app allows you to, please leave a five-star review of this podcast and maybe a comment, and, and that encourages others as they're searching for, uh, for a podcast in this category. So here's a thought that encourages me when there seems to be disagreement among the experts, right? here's the here's the the question i always ask myself is it reasonable to believe what i believe that is all i'm trying to establish in this podcast i hope to encourage people who have grown up in a very uh, we'll call it sheltered christian environment and they're not aware of some of the skeptical arguments regarding christianity and then if you are not a christian but you stumbled on this episode or maybe you know me and that is you know the only reason that you're listening I hope I'm able to demonstrate that Christians are not just closing their eyes and jumping off a cliff in some giant leap of faith. We have reasons for believing what we believe. Also, the the part of Christianity that I rarely mention in this podcast, and it's not because it's not important to me, but uh, it's this, it's the fact that Christians believe we are saved by the grace of God alone. And so the Holy Spirit, we believe, has worked a miracle in us. He shows us the depth of our own sin and our need for a Savior. He also shows us the glory of the Lord. And so it sounds weird to non-Christian ears to, to hear this, but, you know, you've got to remember that aspect of it, too. The Holy Spirit convinces me of the truth of the Bible. Now, I know that is not something you can see and touch, and so the Bible commands Christians to be able to give a defense for why we believe what we believe and and so thank you so much for allowing me to do that. But also just know that there there's another aspect of it that I haven't really talked much about. Uh, some of that will come up in a f- just a few episodes from now. So I'm excited about that. Now this is a special part of the show. It's called a bear in the woods, and this is where I just answer kind of you know silly questions or whatever. Um, I talk to a lot of people about this in my in my office. I'm an eye doctor, so I get to talk to people all the time. Here it is. Bear, what do you think of the newer Star Wars movies? So I am a Star Wars fan. I'm kind of a late bloomer, so I think I saw the original Star Wars movies in high school. One of my buddies had the original three movies on VHS tape, so uh, just there's a little bit of a throwback there. So I do like the original episodes the best. That's episodes 4, 5, and 6. So if you're not familiar with how Star Wars works... Episodes 4, 5, and 6 were the first ones. Those are like the, the old-school, original Star Wars movies. Then, 1, 2, and 3 were were made. And then, 7, 8, and 9. So, 9 is the, the most recent one. If, so, you know, if, if you're unfamiliar with that, that's kind of how it works. And so, a lot of the old-school, diehard Star Wars fans, they stick to those original three as being the best. What's interesting to me, though, is, you know a lot of kids that i see at the office they don't like the old ones they actually like the newest ones the most uh, which is crazy because a lot of the diehard guys just hate the newer ones right so everybody's got their own opinion Uh, for me there are some star wars movies i like more than others my favorite is the empire strikes back that's number five Uh, But I enjoy the backstory of movies one, two, and three. And I also like seeing the next generation of characters in the more recent movies, seven, eight, nine. I try to enjoy each movie for what it is without trying to force the writers to make the movie that I want them to make. And this is what, you know, a lot of diehard Star Wars fans, they like hate the new movies. Just, you know, just hate them with a passion. I'm like, okay, just come on, man. Are you a Star Wars fan or are you not? You just got to kind of take what you're given. And so, you know, imagine yourself having to write the next Star Wars movie. What an impossible task to write something which all Star Wars fans would love. It's just, it's impossible. So like it or not, those are the Star Wars movies you have. May the Force be with you. So the first section I want to talk about is the Gospels and Acts And so this section will include just basically a lot of random stuff (laughs) that I've read over the years. And so uh, just hang with me. But uh, you may ask first, why is Acts included in this section? So part part two, Acts is part two of Luke-Acts. Luke wrote both of those. In Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, it says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke kind of gives this intro, hey, there's been there's other things that have been written about Jesus, and this is my carefully... You know, researched. I you know I talk with eyewitnesses, and this is the account. And he's writing to some person named Theophilus. Now, in in the first verse of Acts, it says this: In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's talking about Luke, and then he goes into Acts, which is like the the history of the early church. And so Luke, who was this Luke guy? Luke was a traveling companion of Paul the Apostle Paul, and by that alone, he would have had a lot of connections to the Apostles, eyewitness connections. And so in Acts 16.10, it says this, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so Luke here is is the author, and for some parts of Acts, and, and certainly in the gospel of Luke, he's not there. So the way he writes is, uh, you know, as if it's like third person. But then in some parts of Acts, he's actually traveling alongside of Paul. So he uses descriptive words like we and us because Luke is right there with them. And so throughout Acts, there are several instances where Luke is, is using these phrases. Remember, one of the main criteria for New Testament books is that they were written by apostles of Jesus or close companions of those eyewitness apostles. So a major major book in this area is written by Richard Bauckham, and it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's an award winning book in this area of scholarship, and so you know you can see the episode notes for a link to that book. It's a it's a pretty big book and it's a it's a scholarly type book. I mean it's not super deep, but it's it's not like reading a thriller, right? So it's a it's a big book and you just kind of have to uh, to walk your way through it, and it takes some you have to think about some things that he's saying. So here's some basic points from the book. He talks a lot in the early part of the book about Papias. I mentioned him last week, but there are tons of opinions about Papias. He lived from 60 A.D. to 130 A.D., and Papias heard from John the Elder that Mark was a translator for Peter. So Papias writes that Mark became an interpreter of Peter, and he also says he wrote down accurately the things said or done by the Lord. Then also, we learn from Papias that Matthew, he says, was originally written in Hebrew, which others translated. Now, Papias writes this, because there's a lot of controversy about this statement. Papias writes concerning Matthew's gospel that Matthew arranged the sayings in the Hebrew dialect, and each man interpreted them as he was able. So we have zero evidence of a gospel that is written in the Hebrew language. And so, some scholars think that this word dialect could simply be referring to the literary method or style by which Matthew wrote the Greek gospel. Now, this makes a lot of sense because Matthew is the most Jewish of the four gospels. Uh, again, there are lots of scholarly opinions about you know, this, this papias stuff regarding Matthew. Balcom also spends a lot of time talking about oral history versus oral tradition. And so when when you hear oral tradition, especially today, you may think of something like the telephone game where somebody, you know, something happens and then someone passes that story on and then they pass that story on to someone else and then that it goes down the line and then along the way people are changing the story to make it more dramatic or or whatever. And so that's how we think of oral tradition. Uh Baucom tries to to make a point to distinguish oral history from oral tradition. And so oral history, in Balcom's definition, it was written during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And and this was thought by the ancients to be the best way to do history. They preferred to speak to an eyewitness of someone who was actually in a battle, uh, that sort of thing, rather than looking at other history books about what was written about that battle from someone sort of, you know, out of that scene. They'd rather talk to someone who was right there in the middle of the action. And so it's a misconception that people in ancient times did not care about historical facts. And also, in stressing this oral history, Bauckham tries to, to, to say that these, these stories about Jesus, yes, uh, probably a lot of people were telling them, but there was like reliable eyewitness sources that were responsible for this this story. And so he tries to argue that the writers of the gospel are going to these actual eyewitnesses of the events to get their history. They're not just relying on the general stories that are floating around but and, you know, who knows is, is telling them. They're going to the actual eyewitnesses. And so in his book, he builds this opinion that Papias suggests that the words and deeds of Jesus were attached to these specific named eyewitnesses. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know there are many stories which do not name the people involved. So, Jesus would heal a man or a woman, but we don't know their name. Other stories name the people involved, and even though they have just a really minor role in the story. So, in Mark 10:46 it says this, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Again, in Mark 15:21 it says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Now, this is when Jesus has been flogged already, and he's on the way to be crucified. Typically, the person being crucified had to carry their own cross, but Jesus had been whipped so badly that he he was getting weak. And so that's where this verse picks up. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So what a good knight. Could you imagine being the guy that, that helped Jesus carry his cross? Uh, just unbelievable. But... Anyway, this man, Simon of Cyrene, he is not named in the same story told by Matthew and Luke. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. There's a lot of similarities in the stories that they tell, but there are some differences. So this man, Simon of Cyrene, he's not named in Matthew and Luke, but he is named specifically in Mark. And we're told that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. So why would Mark go through the detail of naming him and telling who his sons are usually especially in the ancient world it was all about who your father was you know so usually a person was known by who their father was they were you know Simon son of whatever you know but he you know Mark tells us who the sons are so it's things like this that make Richard Bauckham argue that these, these was, this was eyewitness accounts. Mark is getting this story possibly from either Simon of Cyrene or the, the son, his sons. And so this is his way of kind of naming his eyewitness for, for this testimony. Were these sons of Simon the Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus, were they well-known Christians in the early church? You know, so why go through the trouble of naming somebody who just is seemingly insignificant? Now, sometimes the opposite happens. The names of very prominent people are omitted by the authors. And so in Mark 14:47 it says this, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So in the context of this verse, Jesus is, has been betrayed and is, and is getting ready to be arrested. And it says one of those, it doesn't name him, said he drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Matthew and Luke also tell this story, and they also omit who actually cut off the ear. But if you're familiar with this story, you know it was Peter. Now, how do we know it's Peter? It's only John's gospel that names Peter. It, in John eighteen ten, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And then it also sort of gives us this little parenthetical phrase that says, The servant's name was Malchus. Again, why name Malchus? And then why is Simon Peter left out of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but then we're told that it's Peter in John? So most of the New Testament scholars believe John was the last of the four Gospels written. So could it be that Peter was dead at the time that John was written and no longer in danger of this condemning him before the Romans? So by not naming Peter, it actually protected him. Now, did Malchus, this the guy whose ear was cut off, did he convert to Christianity eventually? And so he's not named either in the earlier written Gospels, but John names him because uh, possibly he's dead or th- there's just no risk of anything happening to him at this point. And then now he's named as an eyewitness. Again, this is speculation, but one has to ask, why are these specific names, you know, sometimes left out, sometimes uh, put in when they're basically insignificant characters in the story? And so it could be a way of naming these eyewitnesses. Also, if you're Malchus, you know, if you're trying to arrest a man and someone chopped off your ear, and then the man you're trying to arrest bends down and puts your ear back and heals it, you would have to think long and hard about rejecting the claims of that man. Now, here's a few other skeptical arguments and then the the counterpoints for those arguments when it comes to the Gospels. Uh, skeptics of, of the Gospels as being written by eyewitnesses will say things like, uh, these stories were shared about Jesus and spread throughout the Roman Empire. People embellished these stories to convince others of Christianity, and, and then someone way down the line just decided to to write a Gospel. So the counterpoint to that would be that the four Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, or at least we have good reasons to believe that that's a possibility and they were so they were either either written by eyewitnesses or people that got their stories from eyewitnesses. They were close companions of the eyewitnesses. Another skeptical argument is they'll say these stories were not written till decades after Jesus had been crucified, and so they'd been um they were circulating and also the you know in order to write Greek, this must have been some highly educated writers and this there's no way that a Jew that spoke Aramaic in the first century could have written these gospels. It is true that most people in the first century were illiterate, but how many people does it take to write something down? It only takes one. All it takes is one person who can write Greek to record the eyewitness testimony of, you know, Peter, for instance. And so, you know, Mark is supposedly the the person who wrote the account of Peter. We don't know exactly who Mark is, but there is a John Mark... In the New Testament, who is thought to be from a wealthy family and has possibly had an education which would which would have included reading and writing in Greek. Also, the Gospels of Mark and especially the Gospel of John are written in a very basic Greek. In, in fact, John is one of the first things Greek New Testament students will read because it would be like uh, reading something on like a second grade reading level. You know, it's very simple the way it the way it's laid out. Luke was a Gentile physician, a Greek. Position and his gospel uses a lot more complex Greek. And so, and also, the book of Hebrews is considered to be like the highest reading level of Greek in the New Testament. So, that's like the last thing that a student learning New Testament Greek would read. Uh, Also, an interesting note that we'll get to a little bit later Hebrews and Luke are written in a similar style. So, again, Mark is said to have gotten his information from Peter. And the name of Peter is cited significantly more than anyone else besides Jesus throughout Mark's gospel. So Peter is the first disciple Jesus meets. And when introduced, it says this in Mark 1 verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, as in that's Simon Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Now, here's what's strange. The way the brothers are introduced, you have Simon and Andrew are brothers, but instead of just saying you know Simon and his brother Andrew it's Andrew the brother of Simon and so that's a weird way of saying it why not just say Simon and Andrew who were who were both brothers right it, instead it it puts an emphasis on Simon Simon seems to have more significance and then that's that's the very first time we meet any disciple so Peter's the first disciple mentioned And then in the very last chapter of Mark, after Jesus' resurrection, the message to the women at the empty tomb is to go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. And so you have this little extra and Peter added to the end. And again, this is sort of closing it. Uh, Richard Balcom argues that Peter's the first and the last mentioned, and this sort of uh, puts like a, a bracket around the gospel as this being mainly Peter's account. Now, in Mark's gospel, Peter is always there. Some of the disciples kind of drop out of the story. Their names are not really mentioned much, but Peter is seemingly always part of the narrative until he denies Jesus three times. So Peter was not an eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion, but guess what? Taking his place as a named eyewitness, Mark specifically names some women. So in Mark 15, 40 through 41, it says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So, you know, why put this verse in there? He, he mentions some women, and all they're, they're not doing anything. They're just simply looking. They're, they just simply see it. They're looking on from a distance. And then a little bit later, in Mark 15:47, it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph's, saw where he was laid. They saw them put Jesus in the tomb. And then a little bit later in Mark sixteen one, it says when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And so here are the eyewitnesses for Mark during this section of the story. Because remember, Peter has denied Jesus and he's not he he's not an eyewitness here. And so it's, it's as if Mark is kind of highlighting these women as his main eyewitnesses. All, you know, again, all the disciples besides John fled and and left Jesus when he was arrested. The next objection by skeptics in regards to who wrote the Gospels is that the Gospels are formally anonymous. This, this phrase, formally anonymous, means that within the text of the Gospels himself, it doesn't say, you know, my name is Mark and I am writing the Eyewitness accounts of Peter. You know, it, it would be it would be lovely if it just came out and said that, uh, but it doesn't. They're 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 anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. And then skeptics will say that the titles were not given to them until the end of the second century, when lots of other gospels were being circulated, such as the Gnostic gospels. Michael Kruger has a great video that sort of refutes this claim, and I'll link it in the episode notes. But here's the basics: It is true that the gospels are formally anonymous. But a lot of ancient biographies were also formally anonymous. So this was fairly common during that time period. Also, if the titles were not given to, to these Gospels until the second century, then how is there so much uniformity in what these Gospels were called? So basically, as we start to discover manuscripts, Matthew is always called Matthew. Mark is always called Mark. Luke is always called Luke. John is always called John. So even manuscripts discovered in different parts of the world all share the same title. If the titles were a late invention and and there was not any uniformity in how Christians referred to these Gospels, then we would expect either no titles or lots of different titles for these books. But every time we find them, they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John now Matthew and john are are logical titles because they were well known disciples they're you know they're both part of the twelve disciples. But why would you title a gospel Mark or Luke if you're just trying to make up a title to give it credibility? In the second century, when the Gnostic Gospels were being written, they attached very popular names to them, trying to gain credibility. So that's why you have the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of the Twelve. The only reason for calling a gospel Mark or Luke is because these were thought to be the authors of those gospels. there's, There's no credibility gained in calling it Mark or Luke. Irenaeus, who I talked about last week, wrote around 180 AD. He is famous for stating that there are four and only four Gospels that should be in the New Testament canon, and he also tells us that Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John. Also, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So that is a pretty tight chain, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus. All right, that's a pretty tight chain of evidence. And so Michael Kruger concludes with this there are very good reasons to think that Irenaeus knows better who the gospel authors are than modern scholars. Now, it is important to understand that the skeptical arguments against the authors of the gospel and the New Testament, for that matter, is an argument from silence, right? It's not like we have multiple ancient sources who are all debating over who actually wrote these books. The consistent testimony of the early church fathers is that the gospels and the New Testament books were written by the people attached to their names. At worst, there is some debate over which John wrote the gospel of John, the letters, first, second, third John, and Revelation. So in some of the early church fathers, there is a John called John the Apostle or John the son of Zebedee, but there's another John called John the Elder. So some scholars believe that this is the same person with just two different titles and some believe it's two separate people. Either way, both are considered close followers of Jesus and eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And for a very detailed discussion of John the Elder in the, in the book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Balcom has an extensive amount of information that you know details this argument, and it is really, really interesting. I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. All right, moving on to Paul. Paul's letters. Paul names himself as the author of 13 of the letters in the New Testament and Christians readily attribute Paul as the author. But as I've mentioned before in previous episodes, scholars are only unanimously uh, in agreement that Paul wrote 7 of these letters, and these are called the undisputed letters of Paul. It's Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians and Philemon. Now the other letters by Paul are disputed for various reasons. One of them is writing style, uh, but Paul sometimes uses a scribe and that scribe names himself in at the towards the end of these letters and things like that. So they would have used a, a different writing style. Some of these letters are disputed because of historical information, so some historical information in the Pauline letters is is not mentioned in Acts and vice versa, so they say that the history doesn't quite line up, or there's some details that are mentioned in one but not mentioned in the other. However, there is no requirement that all the historical information in one book has to be covered in a letter. It's important to remember that Paul's letters are just that. They are letters to people familiar with Paul's teaching. Some letters are to close friends, while others are to community churches. I mean, would you have the same writing style and information in a letter to one of your closest friends compared to a church you visited on a mission trip a few years ago? You know, so it's okay that the the writing style and the information is a little bit different between these. Some scholars will say that the disputed letters were written by people faking as Paul, then they were they were just you know similar to the gospel names. They're trying to use Paul's name as a way to gain credibility for their letter. The church rejected many books because they identified them as being written by fakes. So this is what happened with the Gnostic gospels. Tertullian and, and he wrote he lived from one sixty to around two twenty five. AD, he wrote that when it was discovered that a church elder faked the acts of Paul, which included a supposed Pauline letter of 3 Corinthians, that offending elder was removed from his office. So the early church did not consider it like okay to write in the name of an apostle. So it's not like they were saying, well, we know that Paul probably didn't write this, but it's good stuff, so let's just keep it in there. No, from all the evidence that we have, the early church was trying to sniff out the things that were not authentically written by paul, and then if if found out, they you know got rid of those people as far as being uh, leaders or anything like that, also we are very arrogant in assuming that people in that day had no way to verify the truth of things that they were told that they were just stupid, and if someone brought them a letter and said this is from so and so that they just readily you know admitted it uh, they were there were likely all kinds of ways of verifying the truth of these letters or the um, that that the sender of the letter was who they said it was, and so we we don't know a lot of those things. It could have just been you know things we know in culture of of ways that they they verified that, and so it's ridiculous just to think that they were not smart enough to to keep track of who's actually writing these, and so it, we don't have to just be completely radically skeptical about any you know anything that is supposedly written by Paul. So that's, you know, one way to view all the data is just radical skepticism, that we can't trust any of it, and, you know, always assume that, you know, that, the, that people are just trying to lie to us all the time. I mean, another way, obviously, is to take these letters that, that tell us Paul wrote them as actually being written by Paul. This is a great example, by the way, of how skepticism works. When I was discussing the Gospels, one of the skeptics' main arguments is that the authors do not formally name themselves as the authors. Therefore, they, you know, we, these, these gospels are anonymous, and we don't know who wrote them. Okay, so let's assume that Mark said, my name is Mark, and I am writing this letter, and it is the account of Peter. Well, essentially, we have this with all the letters of Paul. Paul says, I am Paul, you know, servant of Christ Jesus, and da-da-da-da-da. You know, goes on with the letter. And, but that is still not good enough. So the boundaries or, or the the criteria for skeptics will always move around. No matter what evidence they have, no matter what you know what they say they want. If you give it to them, they will still find a reason not to believe. And so in skepticism, you can always move the boundaries. If you are looking for a reason to doubt, there is always a reason to doubt. Now, by the same token, I'm trying to be fair here if you are looking for a reason to believe, there is always a reason to believe. And so uh, that, you know, I realize me getting on the skeptics for always finding a reason to doubt is a bit hypocritical because I am simply always looking for a reason to believe. Now, just all I can ask you is just to hang on to that concept a little bit. And I will come back to that idea in a few episodes from now. All right, let's talk about the book of Hebrews. (sighs) There, you know, people often ask, especially Christians will say, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Hebrews is way up there. I mean, way, way, way up there. I love the book of Hebrews. Uh, It was written in the first century, like all the other New Testament books, and it was treated as apostolic from very early on. The general consensus, though, is that we don't know who the author is. So Origen in the third century wrote, who actually wrote this epistle talking about Hebrews? And then he says, "Only God knows." <laughs> so there are lots of theories about who wrote Hebrews. Uh, Paul is, you know, one of the one of the theories. It, Hebrews is often attributed to Paul. Hebrews is actually included in a manuscript that contains most of Paul's letters, and it's one of the earliest manuscripts we have. It's called P forty six and Hebrews is placed second in order so it's right after Romans and this is important because it was common for Christians to place canonical books first and then if there were some other you know non-canonical writings they would just kind of you know tack them on to the end uh we can see this in other manuscripts but what's important here is Hebrews is towards the front and i mean it's, you know kind of right in the middle of all the other letters of Paul so that's one of the reasons Paul was considered to be one of the writers Um, some have proposed that Hebrews is a sermon that was preached by Paul, and then that information was written down by Luke. And this is partially due to Luke's writing style. I mentioned that in Luke and Acts, the writing style of of Greek in those is similar to that which is found in Hebrews. Barnabas is another possible author, and this was suggested by Tertullian in the 2nd century. This is due to Barnabas being known in the early church as an encourager, and there's a theme of encouragement that that runs throughout the book, and then in some of the closing verses, the, the author says, I'm writing this to encourage you and, you know, encourage others, and that sort of thing. And then Apollos was a companion of Paul, and we are told this about Apollos in Acts 18.24. It says, "...now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures." And so the author of Hebrews, he, he wrote very eloquent Greek, which I've already talked about, and also was very, very familiar with the Old Testament. There are tons of Old Testament references and allusions in Hebrews, and that's one of the reasons it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, is because it does such a great job of tying all the threads that are running throughout the Old Testament and, and points them to Jesus in the New Testament. So I just really love Hebrews. So you may be thinking, well, we still don't know who wrote it, okay? Well, remember, the Gospels are formally anonymous. They have titles, but we don't actually know who the author is. We have good reasons to suspect that a certain person wrote them. Uh, But whoever the author of Hebrews is, he is obviously connected to the apostles, and the earliest evidence we have suggests that the first Christians treated it as Scripture, in the closing verses of the book of Hebrews, the author shares that Timothy has been released from prison. Also, in, in so Timothy is connected to the apostles. Also, in chapter two of Hebrews, the author writes this: It's it's verse uh, chapter two, verse three. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And so, therefore, the author of Hebrews got his information from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Now I'm not going to talk much about the general letters, and these would be James, Jude, First and Second Peter, and then I've I've kind of already mentioned First and Second, Third John when I talked about uh, John the Apostle versus John the Elder. So James and Jude were written by the like half brothers of Jesus. There's some discussion about their apostolic authority since they did not travel with Jesus, and they they didn't actually believe that Jesus was who he said he was until after his resurrection. But James, especially, is a very prominent leader in the early Christian church. First Peter is widely accepted as being written by Peter, but second Peter is doubted by some. And it's for similar reasons that they reject some of Paul's letters, such as writing style and things like that. But again, if Peter used a different scribe for first Peter than he did second Peter, then writing style would expect it to look a little different. And then the last book is Revelation. There is early evidence for the widespread acceptance of Revelation. Its doubt actually was not until later on. So it's like widely accepted early, then doubted, and then, you know, it's it's considered part of the New Testament canon. Uh, those doubts were not based on the authorship of Revelation, but rather the message and the interpretation of Revelation. And so the evidence for the early acceptance of Revelation As scripture, it goes back as early as Papias and also Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, the Muratorian fragment. I talked about a lot of all those things in last week's episode, Uh, Hippolytus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. So a lot of early church fathers accept Revelation, and almost every one of these church fathers accepted the book of Revelation on the belief that John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, was the author. And so there's much discussion about Revelation amongst modern scholars. Uh, And I've already mentioned the debate about, you know, John the Apostle versus John the Elder. Uh, Again, either way, it was still written by John, an eyewitness apostle of Jesus. So what do we make of all this, right? I mean, if you go back to episodes I've covered on the resurrection, I used an argument based on the minimal facts. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes a creed of the early church which can be reasonably dated to within a few years of Jesus' crucifixion. This dating can be found even among skeptical scholars of Christianity. So, if the resurrection happened, then Christianity is true. The Bible explains what happened on that cross and how we should live in response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Christianity proclaims the way sinful mankind is made right with God and that message is passed to us through the Bible, God's Word. How could we have that message unless it was written down? What would you rather have, oral tradition over 2,000 years or written words which date back to the time of the eyewitnesses of Jesus? Now, scholars can argue over the historical details of the books of the New Testament, but from a very basic standpoint, there is good reason to believe these books were written by eyewitnesses. Furthermore, I believe the Holy Spirit was guiding the church all along as the New Testament canon was circulated and eventually closed. Basically, I believe that God has given me the books that I need to know about Him. At the end of each episode, I usually quote a verse, and I use the ESV translation. Today's verse is from the King James Version, and this will lead us into next week's episode about textual criticism— We have thousands of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, but these are handwritten copies and there are differences. So how can we know what was in the original manuscripts? Our closing verse, again, it's the King James Version of 1 John 5-7 and is one of the most explicit statements about the Trinity found in the Bible, but not in every Bible. Why is this verse not in my ESV translation? Here it is in the King James, 1 John 5-7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one.